Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Thursday, June 18th, we are studying James chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. One of the stains of the world, the stains which St. James has told Christians to avoid, is partiality. The distinction between rich and poor has no place among those who are brothers holding the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us a regular guest, Pastor Carl Roth. Pastor Roth serves at Grace Lutheran Church in Elgin, Texas. Pastor Roth, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Pleasure to be here, Pastor Apple. Pastor Roth, we've come through one chapter of this short little epistle so far. It's a very vivid epistle, lots of pictures that St. James gives us, a wonderful preacher, I think, St. James. And sometimes, as I've read through the book, it's hard to connect the dots from one text to the next. It's almost like the Proverbs in that sense, and there are definitely connections to the wisdom literature here in St. James. Today's text, though, I don't think is one of those. It's pretty easy to connect it from what comes before and to what comes after. There's some context already. Elaborate on it. Give us what else we need to know going on into the text for today. Well, as you mentioned, the partiality is a stain, uh, a form of becoming stained by the world, and that's the the verse leading into the beginning of chapter 2. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world, and immediately he moves into partiality. So I think there is a tight connection there. Also to the immediately preceding section that talked about being doers of the word and not hearers only. So it's very easy for us in the abstract to embrace the word, but to put it into practice when we're surrounded by, um, oh, sinful people, unpleasant people, people of different classes, you know, that, that's pretty, that's when the, the rubber hits the road and, it get, and it's tough, right? Um, so James is constantly challenging us to connect our faith with our piety. And I think that might be a pretty good way of translating that term religion mm. in the previous verses because religion today can have the sense of a cafeteria of, you know, lots of different choices, Buddhism, Islam, etc. But here James is, is talking not about Obviously, he's talking about the Christian faith, but then our Christian piety or sanctification. I like that word piety for the word religion, religious, previously. It's a an unusual word. It's not one that we see a ton in the scriptures, that particular Greek word. But I think piety, the way that the faith is lived out, is important. That That's the previous context. How does this I know we had to divide the text up so that we spent plenty of time digging in, but how does this propel us forward into the book of James as well? Well, I mean, we're going to look in, in, we're not going to look at verses eight and nine today, but I should go ahead and just read those because James says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. So that's a really important bookend on chapter 2, verse 1, that uh, 
we should just keep in mind right up at front. You'll dig more into that passage next time, but uh, also the fact that you shall love your neighbor as yourself is invoked here. Clearly, the way we love our neighbor as ourself is going to involve the treatment of people impartially. Mm, Yeah. With that introduction, let's go ahead and read the text. St. James writes, chapter 2, verse 1, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet, Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? That is the text for today, James chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Pastor Roth, let's start with those very first words that we see in the ESV, my brothers. This is a greeting that St. James uses quite often in his epistle. Why is this important that he addresses his brothers? First, let me just say how enthusiastic I am about us studying James. This is great. It really is, right? Well, I mean, so just, and I probably said this previously, we just got done with the book of Romans here on Sharper Iron, which is arguably Luther's favorite epistle. And now James, which is arguably, or sometimes maybe that's misunderstood, but arguably his least favorite epistle, they're books that sometimes get put up against each other as if they contradict each other. One must be right, one must be wrong. So it seemed fitting to read them back to back. And of the two, James is probably the one, was well, definitely the one, that gets neglected, particularly among Lutherans. And so it is, it's been a joy to go through it. Again, as I was saying earlier, one of the things that it really has impressed me is just the vivid pictures that James uses. He, he really puts just such powerful illustrations, and we've got one in our text today. So yeah, it, it's, a, it's a joy to be, to be looking at it with you. And I think that's a, a reflection of the, the Hebrew background, the you know, the, the Old Testament background, which is a very earthy. Hebrew is an earthy language. Mm-hmm. The Old Testament's full of earthy imagery. Mm-hmm. So at any rate, my brothers, yeah, this is a beautiful introduction. It emphasizes the church as a family, that we are all baptized sons of God in Christ Jesus. In chapter 1, James had said, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So we have uh, something very similar in John chapter 1, that all who received Jesus, who believed in his name, had the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. That is, by God's will. So we are, by God's choice and election, born into his kingdom, which makes us all brothers. Those are words that sometimes I think we we might skip over and not give any reflection upon. James is going to give us another opportunity to do so in this very text. He's going to use that term again. Similar to the way sometimes pastors may start their sermons with words like grace and peace to you. 
and we just sort of ignore them. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, in, in Luther's commentary in Galatians, he points out that, you know, grace and peace, which Paul introduces his epistle with, are basically the sum and substance of the entire gospel. Hmm. And so we should never glide over them, but should, just like we've talked before about the name of Jesus, hmm. every t- and we're going we're gonna to see the name of Jesus in the next, the next phrase. When you come across the name Jesus, what should you think? He's the the one who was sent to be our savior from sins. That's why he's named that. He's our Joshua who leads us into the promised land. Right. So with the word brothers, the family of God, it should, I think, bring to mind the fact that we are brothers because we have a brother, Jesus Christ, capital B, brother brother. there. Big brother, that's right. And so we're united together in him. Now, James calls him, and I think, Pastor Roth, you're going here more on the the Greek word order rather than the English word order. You're, filled, you're free to talk about that if you want. But So my brothers, we're going to talk about Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory here. And this is significant, I think, for a couple reasons. One is that it is one of the very few places in this epistle where you actually get the name Jesus. You don't get the name Jesus all that often in the book of James. Now, he's talking about Jesus all the time, of course. And verses like this, the very first verse of the book, set that stage. I'm convinced that a lot of the times when James uses the title Lord all by itself, he's really talking primarily about Jesus himself. Absolutely. So having said that, though, we actually do get the name Jesus here, and it's modified quite a bit. So we've got Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Yeah, I'll talk briefly about the translation. That's a fine translation, by the way. Um, and there, there's, you know, none of the translations I consulted were bad. Um, all of them are basically conveying the divine and human natures of Christ. That uh, He is the Lord and the Lord of glory, and this this indicates His divine nature. And Jesus, the Christ, indicates His human nature. Right? He's He's anointed the Messiah, um, and that's according to His human nature. Um, but anyway, you could also translate it, our Lord of glory, Jesus Christ. The Lord Lord is only in the text one time, and the ESV it's translated with Lord twice for, for clarity. But uh, you could translate it, our Lord of glory, Jesus Christ. But regardless of how you translate it, it conveys divine and human natures of Christ, a very high Christology here. And uh, it's a very, uh, so this is the fundamental confession of the Christian faith. Philippians 2, the climax, Philippians 2.11 of the great Christ hymn, Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And this is the Lord of, of the Old Testament, Yahweh, Jehovah. This is, this is indicating, um, just like Thomas does on um, the Sunday after Easter, when he sees Jesus standing there and he says, my Lord and my God. So he's, he's clearly making a statement that he's not just their master, he is the Lord. Now, what about, I mean, Lord of glory, what type of glory are we talking about? So, God's glory in the Old Testament is his presence. When his glory fills the temple, it is an indication that he's on the scene. And we can also extend that out to heavenly glory. Um, He's got, you know, glory be to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's the one who possesses all glory in heaven and on earth. Um, our Old Testament reading uh, for Trinity Sunday um, in the one-year lectionary was Isaiah chapter 6, 
where Isaiah is in the temple and he's astonished and overwhelmed at the glory of of God's presence. So I think that uh, he's Jesus is the one who is the the presence of God in the world. Um, and we also see St. Paul bring, using this, this same phrase in 1 Corinthians 2. Uh, he says, We impart a secret in his hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So it is, by, but, but ironically, of course, it is by the crucifixion of the Lord of glory that we receive the glory of forgiveness of sins and everlasting life. And in, in John's gospel, the word glory is used to refer to, I think, all of it, but it certainly includes the crucifixion. And that's it's, where the glory starts. hour of glorification. Right. Yeah. So what's, I guess the, the reason I want to dig into that a little bit is why James makes use of this title for Jesus, our Lord of glory, Jesus Christ, our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. What's the point of bringing up Jesus as the Lord of glory in this context. It's very interesting because if it is connected to the crucifixion, this is his humiliation. And we see then a reference to his poverty, the poor man versus the rich man. Um, so uh, it is, again, the theology of the cross, I think, that we see here. Right. So that, could we say that in that sense, the Lord of glory, Jesus becomes an example here for the type of piety that James is going to lay out? Humiliation before exaltation, and then, of course, back to chapter 1, suffering before mm. glorification. Mm. And rejoicing in that suffering. Right. So, my brothers, our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Lord of glory, they are to show no partiality, they are to hold the faith. Yeah, or keep the faith. Which which of those do you want to talk about first? Oh, well, um, I think, um, you mean holding or yeah, you want to talk about holding, or you want to be holding the faith, or you want to go with the partiality? Oh, well, let's let's go with holding the faith first. That's a I, good. I think, um, yeah, because this is so tightly connected to the, the faith of Jesus Christ, okay. the revelation of Jesus Christ. So this is the, the faith, capital F. This is the objectively revealed teaching revealed by Christ in which we believe. And so our faith trusts in this faith. Again, um, we had uh, the Athanasian Creed on Trinity Sunday recently, and uh, it's it begins, whoever desires to be saved must above all hold the Catholic, that is the universal Christian faith. It's very interesting that the creed uses hold the faith in the same language that James does. So this is something that we cling to, something that we hold on to and embrace. And all of this that we've been talking about so far is going to form the basis, the foundation for the piety, the religion that James is going to be teaching in this text. So, my brothers, we are united together as Christians in our big brother, Jesus Christ, who is the Lord of glory, that glory shown in his humiliation and exaltation, the cross and resurrection, who has given us the faith, this Catholic faith that the church in all times and all places has believed. And with that as the foundation, the primary way that this religion, this piety manifests itself is in the matter of showing no partiality. So what is partiality? So partiality could also be translated favoritism. And the uh, the Greek term really means to kind of, oh, 
be be too taken in with someone's face, right? It's like mm-hmm. to, to focus. Uh, you know, the old the King James translation was a respecter of persons, mm-hmm. and so to look at the person and uh, and their their visage and their gravitas and their wealth and status and be impressed by that and give deference and uh, you know respect to people who have a more impressive position and personage. Okay, so that's that's what partiality is—a favoritism, a respecter of persons looking at a person's face, judging a book by its cover. Well, I think there there could be an element of that, but you know, there there is an, a sense in which in society, you know, that there people can be very impressive, mm-hmm. right? And 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 admired for that. You know, they don't draw attention to themselves necessarily. There, a person can be very impressive, but also very humble. But here, it's more so having to do with when we gather as Christians, we all stand before God as equals. Mm. Because even the most successful, impressive human being is a poor, miserable sinner. And the lowliest beggar and I share that in common. And so as we gather for worship, as we look upon each other as Christians, we don't, we don't look to that status and give deference uh, on the basis of outward appearance. Hmm. So this partiality, giving deference to those based on outward appearance on something other than what our Lord says, that's what we are to avoid. Show no partiality, show no favoritism, do not be a respecter of persons, because this is who God is. Precisely. You know, St. Paul tells us to be imitators of God as beloved children and we know from the Old Testament that impartiality is an attribute of God. And so, of course, we're to adopt this same attitude. It's also worth noting that just like St. Paul does, James here starts out with doctrine, right? The faith, teaching, talking about Jesus Christ, and then immediately moves into exhortation um, and the emphasis on imitation. And Paul does the same thing. I think, you know, again, James gets kind of a bad rap because... Because you can find plenty of sections in Paul where he does this. No, I think what we're maybe our, the problem is with us if we mm. bristle at that and think that we can apply these sort of dogmatic categories to the way uh, our Lord's Word needs to to read. Um, we need to let the Word shape us and inform us rather than try to tell the Word of Scripture what it what it needs to be doing. Right, right. Yeah, the problem would be with us when we would try to put one part of God's Word in contradiction to another. Rather, let the Holy Spirit do the teaching. And as as we let the Holy Spirit do the teaching, we do see exactly what you're saying, that James has laid out doctrine. He's laid out, to use another term, gospel, what our Lord Jesus Christ has done. And now, here's our response. Romans, we saw this turn in the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Paul appeals to us by the mercies of God to have this transformed way of life, this reasonable service, the service that makes sense in what of lo- in light of what Christ has done. And James has that same move right here. He's, he's again, brothers, Jesus, Christ, Lord of glory, the faith, all these passages about who God is. He does not show favoritism. He's impartial. This affects us. And of course, this is also Christ, hmm. right? And, and I mean, later on, um, well, I mean, actually earlier, um, in, temporally, uh, Peter was uh, preaching um, and said that, truly I understand that God shows no impart, 
God shows no partiality. And he, and he says this in reference to Jews and Gentiles. The Holy Spirit is poured out upon both Jews and Gentiles now. Um, and so that that is an, one element of the partiality. The other is, as in our text today, more of a, a moral element in the sense of looking at people based on their class or status or wealth. And that's in the Old Testament as well. Um, Deuteronomy and Leviticus um, and, and, for example, Leviticus 19, you shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. Now, that's an interesting one because there it's talking about being partial to the poor. Um, you know, you do see it cutting both directions, don't you? Um, with liberation theology, you see this sort of elevation of the poor to being more virtuous simply because of their poverty. But uh, Leviticus is simply saying, um, be objective. Right. Again, the same judgments that the Lord would give as the one who is just, he would commend to his own people. Show no partiality, no favoritism. And it is, it, it's easy to, in, you know, I mean, as we look at what James has here, the example that he's going to put out there for us is judging the rich with a favoritism above the poor. But having fallen off that proverbial horse on the one side, it is it is easy in an attempt to get back on the horse to miss the horse entirely and jump over and fall off on the other side and end up showing favoritism to the poor. That's that's really a great point. Um, and and um, the proper distinction between law and gospel always involves that balance and and context. It's a, a casuistry that involves a, looking at things on a case by case basis. Hmm. So let's now. There's plenty to dig into in the example that James gives us. This is one of those very vivid pictures that he has within his epistle. But before we dig into the the specifics and some of the, the words in particular, let's make sure that we don't miss the big picture. What is this picture that St. James paints for us as he's going to talk about showing no partiality? Well, I think that the key is in verse 2. In the ESV, it's translated as your assembly. In the Greek, this is actually literally the synagogue. And so we're in the context of worship here. And I think that's a really um, you know, crucial thing to note, that the epistles are all written to a worshiping community. And they assume the gathering together, um, if not on a daily basis, at least on a weekly basis. Remember in Acts chapter 2 on Pentecost, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. These are all communal activities. And, of course, we're told that they were gathering each day together, breaking bread in their homes, celebrating the Lord's Supper. And so we see the regular gathering for worship as a fundamental um, event in the book of Acts and then also has to be assumed through the epistles. And the Gospels also were written to churches uh, that were assembling on a regular basis. Why why is it so important that the church actually assembles, comes together? And in our world today, where many congregations are just now coming back to a physical assembly, some of them with greater success than others, why, why is it such a big deal that Christians assemble? I mean, I, I think— you could approach it from the perspective of the law, and that is the Lord tells us to do it. Mm. So, you know, pestilence, plague, and famine have been a part of the world ever since the fall into sin, and God's people have kept assembling. Yes, they've suspended it for periods of time when it was dire, 
But nonetheless, they came back together again because it is the Lord's will. As Hebrews 10 says, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, this is our preparation for Judgment Day. Now, let's look at it from the gospel perspective, however. We don't simply come to church because we have to. We get to, and it is our joy to do so, because Jesus said, Wherever two or three have been gathered together in my name, there I am among them. And the same word for synagogue or the verb for synagogue is used there, to be gathered together in the name of Jesus. And so, you know, you really can't celebrate the Lord's Supper independently as a separate entity. So that's one issue, is that the church does need to assemble to receive the Lord's Supper. Um, but it also, as, as Hebrews says, we are able to stir each other up to love and good works through our gathering together. As we gather to praise the Lord, we don't gather to tell him how great he is. We gather to tell each other how great he is and therefore build up our faith in God by our, our praise of God. And then we pray for ourselves. We pray to the wor- on behalf of the world. And we hear the word of God. We receive the, 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 the sacrament. Um, it is just the most glorious and wonderful element of the Christian life. A couple of thoughts in response. One is that you gave a very Lutheran answer, I think, where so many questions, it seems, why do we do this, involve both the Lord's command and his promise. And that is true for the gathering together of Christians to worship. We have the Lord's command to do so, but even more than that, we have his promise. And another another thought, I've, I've heard it said recently that, and I think it was spoken it wasn't in jest, but perhaps with a, a bit of irony that, to to play off what John says in his gospel, the word became flesh, not pixels. <laughs> and, uh, I like it. <laughs> and and while, again, that the suspension of physical gathering for a time was needed for the sake of loving our neighbor in just about every context, but the word became flesh. There is something about being together in the flesh that is good and right and intended by God for us as his people. Yeah, and our flesh is what is going to ultimately go into the grave. Yet as Job says, yet in my flesh I shall see God. So it's also really important to remember that we're all going to die. I think James points that out in chapter 1. Mm-hmm. Um, and and. Uh, you know, we're like a mist. That's in chapter three, I think. Right, right. Yeah, the, that and that death in chapter one is in the context of rich and poor, which is he is talking about here. We're going to take a short break here, Pastor Roth. You're listening to Sharper Iron. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. 
Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Thursday, June 18th, and we are studying James chapter 2, verses 1 through 7 with Pastor Carl Roth, who serves at Grace Lutheran Church in Elgin, Texas. Pastor Roth, prior to the break, we were talking about this assembly context. James is putting his example here in the worship life of the Christian church. And the picture that he paints is a rich man. This this rich man is very obviously rich. He comes in wearing a gold ring, fine clothing. He comes into this worshiping community. And also a poor man who's very obviously poor. He comes in in shabby clothing. And the example of showing partiality that James gives here would be to pay attention to this rich man, the one wearing fine clothing, and give him a place of honor while saying to the poor man, you go far away where we we can't see that's a picture that he's painting yeah first. it really is very striking in the greek that you know hey rich guy sit here like the place of honor hey poor guy get way over there out of sight or sit down here by my footstool um very clearly a debased position so uh yeah this this is the acting out of partiality um and and not just an abstract sin and in verse four he goes on to indicate that making distinctions in this manner between various Christians um, is a, a sin and a manifestation of the sin of partiality and favoritism. And it really brought to mind for me the parable of the workers in the vineyard, who some started out working at six in the morning, some came at nine, some came at noon, some came at 5 p.m. And of course, the, uh, the ones who were hired first, when they came to get paid, and, of course, Jesus had waited till the end to pay them so that they could see exactly what was going on. They reckoned that they were going to get more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you've made them equal to us who've borne the burden of the day in the scorching heat. But he replied to them, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me, or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first last. So as we stand before God's judgment, we are all equal, completely sinful, completely unworthy. But we all receive the same payment. We're justified by grace. And that's the main thing. So we don't look at other people then as uh, people that we can manipulate and use, but as fellow heirs with us of God's grace and neighbors to love. And again, we're not going to really look at verse 8, but he does say, you know, love your neighbors yourself. And clearly showing partiality is not loving. That meant, I, I think it's a good thing to bring up that parable from Matthew chapter 20, because it does keep us on that foundation that James has laid, the foundation of salvation by grace. This sort of teaching is only truly possible under the salvation given by God's grace. Apart from that, it's going to be forced, but in that reality where everyone is paid the exact same because this is the generosity of God, that's where this sort of erasing of rich and poor as a distinction, that's where it can truly happen. And now, one, one thing you said, Pastor Roth, was that this the distinction between Christians here. And so we're talking about distinctions, judging, words like that, that in our context sometimes get militarized 
against the Christian church. And the charge is laid when a Christian speaks out against a sin, particularly. You're judging me. You can't do that. How do we, as Christians, distinguish between those two situations so that we do what St. James has for us here, that we wouldn't distinguish between rich and poor within the church, but we also are clear in preaching what God's Word calls a sin? Yeah. You know, so St. Paul does say there's neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female. We're all one in Christ Jesus. Uh, And so some people take that to abolish all distinctions whatsoever. Um, within church and within within society. But that is not at all intended to mean that we're to abolish these distinctions in the order of creation, such as between parents and children, husband and wife, preachers and hearers. God is a God of order, not of chaos, and our ordered relationships in this world reflect that good order, and indeed it is commanded in his word. Likewise, the uh, judgment is something that Christians at times are called upon to do, specifically within the context of the congregation. Um, As we move on to verse 4, James talks about an evil way of judging um, by making these distinctions, becoming judges with evil, wicked thoughts. That is, thinking that that to judge another Christian on the basis of wealth or poverty uh, is the way to go. No, actually, that's hostile to the Christian faith, because, of course, Christ Jesus is the one who became poor that we might become rich. Um, That would be begrudging the Lord's generosity, which is condemned by Jesus. So that's where you would apply, judge not lest ye be judged. However, in other contexts, for example, St. Paul tells us specifically to judge sinful behavior. In 1 Corinthians 5, after talking about the guy who was having an affair with his stepmother, and the congregation was like, hey, way to go, buddy. Um, you know, Paul actually tells the congregation to excommunicate him. He concludes 1 Corinthians 5, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So within the congregation, there are there is a time and a place to call people to repentance and to actually exercise judgment. When a pastor, for example, places a person under the minor ban, that is, doesn't let them receive Holy Communion for a period of time because they're living in some sort of public, ongoing sin, that is an exercise of judgment that the Lord indeed endorses and calls upon us to do. I do think it is interesting how Paul does specifically say, you know, God judges those outside. So, you know, it's possible that sometimes Christians um, maybe are wasting their time when they go out into the public square and, you know, you know, decry all these things because our real responsibility is toward our neighbor. And those are the people that we can actually affect and change and help. Um, but we also can ignore what outsiders say about the church, right? They can call us whatever they want. I mean, you know, Christian even was originally a, um, a pejorative label, Christ lackey, you know, those people that follow this crucified God so, you know, as, as Christians, we bear the scorn and reproach that our Lord bore, so we just really shouldn't let that bother us. Well, and that, I mean, James brings that up at the very beginning of his epistle, this, this count-it-all joy when you meet those kinds of trials. So, but I, I think well, well said in terms of the, the difference between the distinctions that James is talking about here versus the way that the words judge not sometimes get misused. And just 
look at what James is doing right here throughout his epistle, laying out this is what true Christian piety looks like. This is not true Christian piety. And it's not hard to imagine James preaching, because he does, preaching to a Christian, you are not living as a Christian right now. Repent. And if there's no repentance, there is judgment. Absolutely. And it's really interesting because he he constantly says brothers, brothers, brothers. And so he really is approaching them in a brotherly manner, but also a forceful manner. And, you know, as as fellow brothers in, in the office of the ministry, you and I occasionally do need to hear a word of reproach from a, a brother in Christ when we are, are acting out of line. Mm-hmm. And we are to receive that with appreciation and gratitude if we are indeed erring. Um, of course, Matthew 18 talks about the same thing, right? When you go to the person who's sinned and they repent, Jesus says, you've gained a brother. And who better to do it than a brother? I mean, just to go all the way back to the first two brothers in the scriptures, Cain and Abel, Cain's infamous question, am I my brother's keeper? The answer is yes, you are. And again, who better to do that than a brother? I, I don't, I don't want to. Well, I mean, you know, imagine Abel as a brother to Cain speaking to him about his offering given without faith. I don't know if that conversation actually happened, but if it did, Cain didn't receive it as a brother and didn't then return the favor to care for the brother. Yeah, because ultimately it's pride, right? The reason that we reject good advice, the reason we reject accurate reproach is because of our pride. We dig in our heels and want to justify ourselves. So again, that ties in nicely with James because he's this big emphasis on humility, Mm. poverty of spirit, so, and this matter of brothers comes back up here in James right here. We heard him address my brothers at the beginning of the text. And a lot of times when we see this, because we do see it often in James, it seems to indicate a change of subject, not always. Here it definitely doesn't. He repeats it in what is the same illustration, and he even adds beloved brothers here. Yeah, because beloved, of course, is uh, the same thing Jesus is called at his baptism. This is my, God says, this is my beloved son. So beloved implies lo- being loved by God. And what, what matters more than being loved by God? Nothing. If you have the love of God, do you need money? Do you need status? Do you need pleasure? I mean, the love of God in Christ Jesus is the ultimate gift. And so I think that that use of the term there reminds us not only that we are to love our neighbor by not showing partiality, but we are to recognize ourselves, remember ourselves as loved by God. Yeah, he comes back to that same foundation that he laid at the very beginning in verse 1, and he appeals to his brothers, his beloved brothers, to listen to him. Yeah, and remember Jesus, the brother of James, uh, had said, he who hears you hears me. So James is speaking on behalf of the Lord and is reminding them, um, yeah, listen up. Right, right. And now listen to what? And the foundation, again, it, James does come back to the gospel. He founds this appeal to listen in the fact that God has chosen. This is God's gracious action. That's the foundation for the piety that he's laying out. Yeah, I mean, God's choice, God's election is just another way of talking about God's grace, and uh, it's just a fundamental teaching of the Bible. Ephesians 1, 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him, that is, chose us in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. And, of course, Jesus, John 15, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear much fruit. And so James says, God, well, he asks asks it in the form of a question, but the answer is assumed. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? Who are these poor in the world that God has chosen? Is it only those who are materially poor? How is the word poor being used here? I think this really sounds a lot like the Beatitudes. Matthew 5, 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So while we certainly, some of those people are going to be poor, we also know that it is not impossible for the rich to enter heaven, right? The, uh, the rich young man, of course, went away sorrowful because he had great possessions. Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Then we've got the camel in the eye of the needle, and the disciples are like, who then could be saved? Jesus tells them, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. What this means is that even a rich person can become poor in spirit. And in fact, you know, if he ultimately just gives away his possessions, he might make himself poor as a way of helping his neighbor. But at any rate, a a rich man can be saved um, by becoming poor in spirit. That is, rejecting his own righteousness and confessing his sin, and throwing himself at the mercy of God in Christ. By contrast, of course, the rich fool clings to the things of this world and has them taken away, and uh, God comes to him and says, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and all this stuff that you have, who's going to get it? So it is for the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward or rich in God. So we need to make sure that uh, with our poor spirits, we are finding wealth and riches in God's kingdom, which God, of course, has promised to give us freely. So the, the matter of being poor in spirit is not entirely bound up in how poor I am physically or materially. So it's, it is possible to be rich in earthly wealth and poor in spirit. It is possible to be empty of earthly wealth and still to not be poor in spirit. Yeah, and I think that covetousness, uh, of course, clings to the flesh of both the rich and the poor. The rich wants more and more and thinks that's going to make him happy. Well, so does the poor. The poor guy does. And um, I think Luther makes that point in the large catechism, that we, you know, the, the, the issue is repenting of sin and acknowledging our poverty of spirit and recognizing our need for the riches of God's grace. And that can be done by rich and poor alike. Right, right. Now, we don't want to say that to ignore the dangers of earthly wealth. We need to take the dangers of earthly wealth that are described multiple times in the Bible, the book of St. James being one of those places, we need to take those very seriously. Well, and of course, St. Paul, the Apostle of Grace, also spends quite a bit of time talking about the dangers of riches and, uh, you know... um, Love of the love of money is a root of all sorts of evils, and many men, by desiring to be rich, have pierced their souls with pangs and have denied the faith. Uh, so we do need to constantly be on the lookout for avarice, 
Um, and, and even the desire to be rich is, uh, is a form of avarice. And so what do you want to be when you grow up? Oh, I want to be rich. No, 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 no. As a Christian, what do you want to be when you grow up? You want to be a God-fearing, you know, loving person who loves your neighbor as yourself. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Now, James, I almost said Paul because I've just been studying the book of Romans for so long. James here says that, that God has chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him. Now, Pastor Rod, you've got a note here, and I want to let you explain it in terms of what it means that that God promises these things to those who love him. But I think that that the reason sometimes words like this may sound bad to us or sound wrong to us, like it's my love for God that somehow it gets him to give me this or something like that. I think the reason is because of what we were talking about earlier, we're trying to fit the words of Scripture into our tidy categories, and we're not willing to let the words of Scripture <laughs> speak for themselves. And and I think this is an example that, that the fact that God has promised this to those who love him shouldn't trouble us at all. We just need to understand what James is saying to us here with that word love. Yeah, I mean, you know, in Romans, of course, Romans 13, Paul says love is the fulfilling of the law, and he talks about keeping the Ten Commandments. So that automatically makes us think then, well, law, love is always law. Um, but, you know, a lot of times in Scripture, um, for example, in John's Gospel and in First Peter, love is used as synonymous with faith. For example, First Peter 1, Though you have not seen Jesus, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. It's a package deal. Uh, when God gives us the gift of faith, he also gives us the gift of love. This is explicit in Romans 5. Um, Paul says, hope does not put us to shame because God's love, or actually could be the love of God, has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. That is, the Holy Spirit is the one who moves us to fear, love, and trust in God, and therefore it's not a work on our part. It's not a deed of law. Um, And just think about all the passages in the Psalms that talk about the confession of, I love you, O Lord, or the hymn, O Lord, thee I love with all my heart. You know, of course, I almost choke on those words because I examine my heart and I think, man, I don't, do I really love the Lord with my whole heart? I know I'm a sinner. I know I love myself too, and I'm selfish. Well, what do I need to remember? First of all, the Holy Spirit has poured the love of God into my heart. Second of all, I'm covered by the righteousness of God's beloved Son, Jesus Christ, which allows me to stand before the Father forgiven and make it a true statement. Right. Yeah, we don't need to be afraid of these words of, of Scripture and try to, again, just fit them into our own preconceived notions, but let the Word define that for us. And particularly, just thinking through what James is doing here, to use the word love is very appropriate with how he's going to move forward when he talks about the works that show forth faith. Right. And and that word faith for James, he's, he's going to talk about how, well, you, you're talking about faith like demons have. You believe that God is one great. That's that's not the faith that James is going to talk about. He's talking about the faith that is made active in love. And so the word here is perfectly appropriate. So then you come to verse 6, and there's a there's an interesting note that, that we can look at. You have, but you have dishonored the poor men. He's, he's again speaking negatively about, about what's happening if they show partiality. You have dishonored the poor man. Seems simple enough, and yet Understood, perhaps looking at the Greek, there's maybe a bit of nuance here that we, we want to catch. 
Well, it's just really interesting that in the previous verses, rich and poor have been in the plural. And now we get to this, you've dishonored the poor man. I mean, it, it could in principle be a reference to the poor man in shabby clothes that had been dishonored in the assembly. But, um, you know, Dr. Uh, Dr. Scare in his commentary on James mentions that it's quite possible this could be a reference to Christ. As St. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. So Christ is the poor man who is being dishonored anytime we as Christians you know, dishonor uh, one, of his chi- one of God's children. So I, I really like the idea that this is a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ, the poor man mm. who became poor for us. You pointed out earlier a connection to the Sermon on the Mount, the poor in spirit. That's something I think is seen throughout this epistle. And James often shows a great knowledge of the words of Jesus throughout. Now, that's not necessarily a quote like you and I would quote from the Gospels in our sermons today. But I wonder if if this could be a reference to the words of Jesus. I'm thinking from Matthew 25, where Jesus talks about whatever you've done for the least of these my brothers— you've done for me. And that, I mean, that would fit very well with the context of what James is doing here in the first part of chapter two. Yeah, I think that's a great, great point, great passage to bring up here. So you have dishonored the poor man, perhaps James saying you've dishonored Jesus. And then he speaks some pretty harsh words to the rich, it seems. Well, we know that rich can inherit the kingdom of God only because it is possible through our Lord Jesus Christ. But Sounds pretty pretty strong against the rich here, Pastor Roth. Yeah, I think he's talking about rich unbelievers here. I think he's he's stretching out into society now because he's saying, you know, are not the rich one the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court and blaspheme the honorable name. So this is clearly a reference to rich unbelievers. Now, of course, St. Paul in 1 Corinthians says that when the, the Christians were called to to the congregation in Corinth, he said not many of you were rich, right? Mm. Not many of you were of high standing, but God shows what was you know, low and base in the world. Mm. So it, we, we know that the, the gospel spread uh, quickly, well, it spread more among the poor than it did among the rich. And it's just demonstrable from the study of history and sociology that many, many rich people have oppressed poor people, have been litigious, have, uh, have been covetous, and also have made fun of the faith. So the the line of thought here from James, it seems, is that why would you favor the rich anyways within your own assembly? Because when you look at the rich outside of your assembly, they're the ones who are persecuting you in the first place. Yeah, because the, the world, the sinful world, looks to wealth and privilege and, and uh, success and thinks, wow, that person must be blessed. But James is just simply saying, don't assume that they're blessed, because look at what they end up doing with their wealth and look at the way they treat other people. So why would you just assume that this rich guy is going to be better than the poor guy? Mm, right, right. And then particularly in verse 7, James mentions, aren't they the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? What is the honorable name by which you were called? Well, this is just a, a has got to be baptismal language um, and a reference to the name of Jesus or the name of God into which we were baptized. It could be translated the name invoked over you. That would be baptismal language, right? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that name is 
invoked over us as we pour the water. Um, and then, of course, we remember what the name of Jesus means. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That is that honorable name, Jesus' name of wondrous love that has been put upon us. And as St. Peter says in Acts 4, there's salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Another reference to the name of Jesus, even if he doesn't actually speak the word Jesus that we were saying at the beginning. Pastor Roth, we've got just a couple minutes left here in the morning. Concluding thoughts on this text from James, the book as a whole, how we make use of it in our lives as Christians. Well, we've, we've touched on the fact that James can get a bad rap in Lutheran circles. And, you know, Luther call, famously called uh, it the epistle of straw. But I would, I would, first of all, quibble with him and think that there's a lot more to it than that. I think there's just wonderful nutrients, perhaps even hay or, you know, range cubes, to, to use some, some ranch metaphors there, highly nutritious stuff. But even if it were just straw, straw is a very useful substance. And not every bit of scripture is intended for the same purpose. And, um, you know, one of my, my grandfather, he was a Lutheran pastor. His favorite book was, was Proverbs, and he wrote a book called Proverbs Alive. And uh, I've always appreciated it, but it's not one of my favorites. But, I mean, Proverbs has a very useful place, but it's not your go-to place for Sunday morning preaching, right? But it has tremendous value for the Christian life, and James does as well. So I don't think we should be playing James off against other books of the Bible or James against Paul. I think we should just be appreciating and thanking the Lord for having given us all this wonderful teaching and apply it to the particular situations that we face on a daily basis. So, for example, if somebody's really proud of their faith and thinks they know it all, maybe we need to point them to James and remind them that they need to be doers of the word, not just hearers. On the other hand, if people are proud of their works— then we need to point them to Paul, who wipes them out and says, no, no, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, rely upon grace. The fact is, in a lot of places, James and Paul are doing the same thing, talking about the same things. In other places, they're dealing with different problems. Pastor Carl Roth is the pastor at Grace Lutheran Church in Elgin, Texas, helping us this morning with James chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Pastor Roth, thanks for joining us this morning. It's an honor, Tim. Thank you. Our big brother, Jesus Christ, has shown forth his glory in his death and his resurrection for all people. He has given us this faith, made us brothers in him. How can we show partiality among ourselves? We all stand with equal grace before him, rich and poor alike. We are made rich by him. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.